Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfang, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. We are live. Welcome everyone to our NBC webinar series. And I am so excited for today's session because we are going to introduce you to our NBC leadership team. This is an excellent opportunity for you to get to know us as an organization, who our incredible NBC leaders are, and they really are my sounding board and my go-to for coming up with the amazing programs and services and content to help best support the those living with a metastatic diagnosis. It is shared by our board member and dear friend, Abigail Johnston. And we have um, amazing women here tonight who are going to share um, more about their self, their diagnosis, and I think what we are looking forward to in terms of what's coming down the pike in 2024. So Abigail, I'll punt things over to you as our amazing host tonight. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Laura. I appreciate that. And this is also one of my favorite times where we get to talk about the people who are putting in the hard work behind the scenes. Um, You all get to see my face every um, other Wednesday and get to talk about so many things that survivingbreastcancer.org is doing, but so much of the heavy lifting that goes on behind the scenes to make sure that we are serving our community in the best way we possibly can. That happens with all of these wonderful ladies. Um, So we are missing one person tonight. And so just want to shout out Kathleen Friel, who has been on this series uh, before. She is a trusted and valued member of our committee. NBC means that sometimes we have to deal with yucky side effects and she's not feeling well tonight. So Kathleen, we send you our best. We hope you feel much better soon. And um, we'll include as we go around our virtual room, we'll include some information about Kathleen. So survivingbreastcancer.org is an organization that serves people from diagnosis and beyond. Right. Uh, part of that beyond uh, is is people who are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. And I am so thankful to survivingbreastcancer.org that when we talk about how the metastatic breast cancer experience is different, when we talk about how patients have different experiences, uh, they really listen. And that's not always the case with every organization. So uh, just also want to begin by thanking Laura and, of course, William. Uh, for for really listening to the facts that we share with them, to our experiences that we share with them. And um, always, as I sometimes say, always say yes when I have a crazy idea. Um, So what we're going to do tonight um, is we are going to let you learn a little bit about each of the amazing women who are on uh, this committee, um, their cancer experiences, and then what they are looking forward to or what they are working on specifically as part of the MBC leadership team. Um, I just want to give you a little bit of an overview as far as what our leadership team does. Um, It is our responsibility to advise survivingbreastcancer.org on what things can be done to support the metastatic breast cancer community. And as part of that, uh, we create materials, we help to review 
and update the website so that our website has uh, great and reliable information for metastatic breast cancer patients. Um, Laura included the, the link that was scrolling across the screen just a moment ago, but if you go to survivingbreastcancer.org, uh, some of the drop-down uh, menus will have information specific to a variety of groups of people, including caregivers, uh, but also specifically delineating the uh, differences between early stage breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. So we definitely suggest you check that out. And then uh, in addition to this particular webinar series, there are a variety of other support pieces in place for metastatic uh, patients, including twice a month specific breakout rooms uh, during the Thursday Night Thrivers support group. Uh, we have a WhatsApp, very, very active WhatsApp channel uh, for the metastatic patients. And then legitimately, whatever else we dream up, which um, part of that is what we'll talk about soon about what Kathleen is working on. But at the end of the day, uh, everything that we do together as the leadership committee and also with survivingbreastcancer.org is focused on you all and what we can do to better serve the larger breast cancer community, but also the specific metastatic breast cancer community. So I want to just say to anybody who's listening, we are always open to ideas. We are always open to suggestions. We are always open to you letting us know if we're not doing something that you want us to be doing uh, or you want us to do more of something or less. So wh whatever it is, we're always open to, to hearing that. So we will begin going around our virtual room here uh, for each of the amazing people on our committee to tell their cancer experience story. And Katie, because you are next to me in our Brady Bunch squares, if you would like to kick us off and uh, share about your diagnosis and where you are now and however much you want to share about the clinical trials that you've participated in, that would be great. Thanks, Abigail. So I am uh, Katie Jewell, and I live in uh, Nebraska in the central part of the United States. Um, I was diagnosed with de novo metastatic disease in February of 2018. So in a couple of weeks, I will uh, celebrate uh, six years of living with uh, MBC. Uh, triple positive initially, my uh, mets were throughout my skeletal, uh, skeleton lymphatic system and uh, in my liver. So I did traditional first line uh, treatment with uh, Taxotere and Herceptin and Progetta and added uh, letrozole uh, to that, uh, did some things, had an oophorectomy, so I didn't have to do the uh, Zolidic shots anymore, um, and was actually initially then after that enrolled in a, in a clinical trial that um, is um, due to report hopefully here soon, um, that was testing uh, Ibrands in the triple positive um, community. Uh, I was in, however, the control arm. So it was it was an open study. I was in the control arm. So I just received standard of care, Herceptin, Progetta, um, and Letrozole. Had a success with that for a number of years and then started having some minor progressions. Uh, so I've been through a couple of different um, options, uh, tried a little bit of an out-of-the-box uh, option with uh, for my second line. And then uh, when that didn't perform as we hoped, uh, enrolled in another clinical trial last May, in May of 2023. And this trial is uh, a phase two trial looking at the combination of uh, in HER2 and catnip in, uh, the HER2 pop in the HER2 positive population. So 
I've had the opportunity to be involved in a couple of clinical trials uh, early on, uh, which is, I think, important for the community to know that uh, there are often trials available uh, that give us access to treatments that we would not have access to, uh, sometimes sometimes really cutting-edge stuff um, that's, um, yeah, and I think that's, that are not last, last resort kind of options for us. So... That's a little bit about uh, my story. Uh, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, besides serving uh, in any way that I can on this team, uh, is I'm hoping to be involved a little bit more with this webinar series and um, come, uh, helping with uh, either, yeah, with with this uh, and, and the presentations that we'll do throughout the year. Thank you, Katie. And Katie is one of those superstars who is not only dealing with a significant cancer diagnosis, but also still works full time. So not everybody can do what, what Katie is able to, to juggle and, and handle. So we're really appreciative of all that you do, Katie. Um, Sheila, would you like to share your story next? Yes. So I um, get first connected with surviving breast cancer when I was asked to participate in a podcast with the Spanish-speaking group, the Spanish-speaking arm of SBC, Después de un Diagnóstico. Um, at the time, I had no idea how I got connected, but I actually figured it out once I attended September of last year, their leadership retreat. And Abigail, who I had uh, uh, already met and had partnered with and many other advocacy, uh, other types of efforts, had connected me to them. Um, and... Um, I am now part of, obviously, this lead, uh, meta, uh, NBC uh, leadership group. And then I will be helping, you know, a little bit with trying to plan for the upcoming webinars, but also with uh, programming and other resources for the Spanish group. And technically, anything else that comes to mind that I feel I can support. Um, it was very, very um, refreshing for me to meet the SBC team and get to understand the amount of resources and all that's available and all uh, and everything else that was in dream stage and in the works. So I am very happy that I actually get to remain connected with the group, um, building those connections and just trying to put more things for the uh, metastatic community. I actually recently attended for the first time one of the Thriver evenings, the um, um, group uh, with the metastatic community about a week or so ago. And uh, because of my work schedule, sometimes it's just not very easy to do the evenings, but um, looking forward to a lot more. And uh, I'm really glad that I get to do this with some people that I had met in other steps of the advocacy journey, too, and getting to know um, new people as well. Thank you, Sheila. So both Katie and Sheila are unicorns and the way that we use that definition in the context of metastatic breast cancer really those people who have lived longer than five years uh, with MBC, but then Sheila's situation is she's even more of a unicorn. I don't know if you're a unicorn squared or whatever we want to call that, um, a sparkly unicorn, um, <laughs> still being on that, that first line of treatment, which, you know, that, that is not everybody's experience. And I know Sheila is very, very grateful for that. We're, we're very excited. Um, certainly, some of you may have noticed that in the last couple of years, survivingbreastcancer.org has made a gigantic effort to translate all of our many, many, many resources into Spanish. 
And so we're super excited for Sheila and Claudia to be on our NBC leadership team to continue allowing us to translate resources into people's heart languages. Um, it's so important to meet people where they are when they're going through such a serious uh, experience like a cancer diagnosis. And we are really committed to doing as much as we possibly can to ensure that people can access good resources. Uh, so Claudia, you are next, my friend, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes, hello everyone. My name is Claudia Gonzalez and I live in Orlando, Florida, just like uh, Sheila in sunny Florida. Although it's pretty cold right now, <laughs> cold for us, I guess. Um, yes, I was diagnosed in 2018, uh, in March of 2018, with uh, metastatic breast cancer. Um, and I went through the treatments, and uh, which included chemotherapy and um, oral, uh, oral chemo as well. Uh, also, um, the mastectomy to my right breast was uh, done at the end of 2018, uh, and I have radiation through uh, to my um, spine, which because uh, my metastasis was in the bones uh, of my spine, and I actually uh, did pretty well with all the treatment and all that. I just want to mention also with uh, the triple negative is a very aggressive uh, cancer. So I was treated really aggressively as well. I am um, was really um, pleased with my medical team and how quickly everything, everything came about uh, in, from my diagnosis to the treatment that I went through. Uh, I was actually uh, no evidence of, of uh, cancer cells for about two and a half years. And then in um, June of 2021, I was diagnosed again, triple negative, stage three. Uh, a lump was found on my left breast this time. And I, at, the, at that point, I went also through uh, chemotherapy and, and no radiation that time, thank God. And um, what else did I have? Oh, and then I had the mastectomy. And uh, after, like at the end of 2021, um, my oncologist decided to do a uh, genomic testing on my on my uh, lamp, and luckily that that was done, and uh, a, a PDL1 mutation was found in my in my um, lamp, and I started with immunotherapy. Uh, I did immunotherapy for a year, and at the end of this month, it would be a year since I finished my immunotherapy. <laughs> so yes, uh, uh, I'm not in treatment right now, and I pray that I will keep this way. Um, I do have a scans uh, regularly, and uh, my scans are actually coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm anxious 
like everyone else that before before all the scans is uh, we get scan anxiety. So I'm really anxious about the results, um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. So hoping not to get in, you know, not to uh, that not nothing is wrong. That everything keeps going, keeps going as it, it is right now, and that I'll continue as uh, no evidence. Uh, I'm very excited to be part of the group of uh, surviving breast cancer. Um, right now, I'm in the path of uh, getting trained as a Latino research advocate, and I'm extremely excited about that uh, and hoping to share as much information as I can with uh, everybody. All right, Melanie, we are over to you, my friend. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Melanie Sisk, and I was, I'll try to make this a short, but I was first diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, stage 1A, back in 2016 at the age of 43. And my mother had breast cancer like 20 years prior. So the first thing we did was genetic testing, right, to see if we had a breast cancer gene in the family. So because I was presented with mastectomy versus lumpectomy and radiation, and there was no overall survival benefit between either one. So my thought process was, if we have the gene, I'll do the mastectomy because, you know, I had a family, kids working, and the genetic test came back negative. So that told we didn't have a gene in the family. So I just went ahead and did the lumpectomy and radiation, and they took out two lip nodes, and the lip nodes were clear, margins were good. I did the OncoDX score, that was the 13. So that meant no chemotherapy for me. I had a less than 5% chance of reoccurrence. And I did the, like I said, the surgery, the radiation, continued working the whole time. And then I was put on tamoxifen and I was told you take it for 10 years, you know? And they move you over to the survivorship clinic at your uh, hospital and you're just getting your um, six month checkups and yearlies. And then I noticed uh, four years later, a little bit earlier, but I noticed I started having some back pain and I was a nurse. I guess I still am a nurse, but I was working with patients and moving heavy patients and heavy equipment. So I just chalked it up to, oh, I've got a bulging disc, you know, so I self-medicated and thinking that's what it was the whole time because, you know, cancer reoccurrence for me wasn't on my radar because I didn't know it was such a high percentage of early stagers that turned metastatic. I've learned now it's between 20 and 30% of all early stage cancers turn to metastatic disease. So I was just told less than 5%, go live your life. So even being a nurse, you know, I, I was never told that. So it wasn't on my radar. Had it been on my radar, I might would have seeked out medical treatment for my back pain sooner. Would that have changed the outcome? No, but I could have got in treatment sooner, but it's all, it is what it is. So Having the back pain, uh, my PCP sent me for an MRI. It showed that I had metastatic disease. So we did the PET scan, all the tests, and it was metastatic cancer. And it was bone only. So it was in several areas in my skeleton. So we immediately, you know, I was 47 at the time. I was, it was four years later. So put me in menopause. So I had Zolodex injections. They started me on CDK46 inhibitor, Ibrant, and Fosladex. So I did that and then I finally got comfortable enough. And also we did 10 radiation treatments to my sacrum because that was the area that was causing a lot of pain because it was pressing on the nerve. So that really helped with the pain. 
did that, started the treatment, eventually decided, okay, I, I want to get rid of Zolodex. So let's do a, uh, I'd already done a hysterectomy, but we kept my ovaries. So we did an oophorectomy, took my ovaries out. So that got rid of that treatment. You know, it was going along happy. And then I had a tonsil that lit up chronically on a PET scan. So what do you do? You're 47 years old. Could it be throat cancer? Yeah, because I'm at the age for that, right? Or it could be breast cancer. It, breast cancer doesn't typically go to the tonsils, but there are documented cases. So the only way to know for sure was do a tonsillectomy. So at 47 years old, I had to have a tonsillectomy. We just took the one tonsil out because the surgeon, the main complication is hemorrhaging. So he's like, I don't want to take them both because that's going to double your chance for hemorrhaging. And so let's just take the one that's lighting up. So we took it out. Everything was fine. It was not cancer. However, I will say personally, I would rather have 20 bone biopsies where they drill down in your back into your sacrum to take out bone than to go through a tonsillectomy ever again as an adult. That was awful. That's the worst thing by far I have had done. So anyway, but thankful it wasn't cancer. It wasn't anything like that. So, um, so yeah, so I'm doing good. It's been three and a half years. I'm still on my first line of treatment, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, Ibrantz and Fosladex. I'm stable. I have scans. We pushed it out to every four months now. It was every three, but as I've got stable, we're pushing it to four. I have scans coming up um, later this month. And like everyone else, it's the skin anxiety. And I really honestly feel like it gets worse because like I know in my mind, the average efficacy of a CDK4-6 inhibitor is 24 months, right? And here I am three and a half years. So it's like, you're just waiting for that shoe to drop. And I hate to be like that, but you know, you can't help it. But anyway, but I'm very fortunate and very thankful that I'm still on my first line of treatment. Always try to stay ahead of the game. Always talk to my doctor like, okay, when progression does come, what do we do next? So we already have a plan in place that may change. Uh, we have a plan now, but in four months, I'm probably going to ask her again, hey, what are we going to do now? Because, you know, everything's changing. So uh, I'm very excited to be on the SBC leadership team at Surviving Breast Cancer. I'm actually the host of the web, the Facebook group for this month. So trying to get to know people there. And I'm fairly new to the community as far as the Thursday Night Thrivers and things like that. So I just really love advocacy work. Um, since I couldn't do nursing anymore, it was just, I tried to go back to that and just couldn't do it. It was physically too much. So I just kind of dove into advocacy work. And honestly, it helps me. It kind of helps give purpose to my own suffering and a reason to get out of bed every day, you know, other than my family. Um, so yeah, happy to be here. Amy, would you like to share next? Hi, I'm Amy Parliament. I live in New York. The accent is from the Bronx. Just kidding. I'm originally from Georgia. Um, so my story began in 2014. I um, do diagnostic imaging. So I kept feeling an area in my breast and it was very tender and they're like, it's nothing. It's nothing. I was 39 at the time. I'd had several mammograms before. I had very dense breasts. I never had any children. So the density in my breast um, was very hard to see through. And back in 2014, they really weren't doing 3D mammograms. So I kept pushing and I was in the process of relocating from downstate New York to upstate New York. And I kept saying to a coworker, like, I feel like something's not right. I wish somebody would look. So eventually I came home, went to the doctor. 
I'm in the middle of the transition. And when I walked in, the physician made a face. And then being in medicine, you kind of are reading the crowd in the room. He's like, I need you to go across the hallway and get um, a mammogram. And when I got to the mammogram, they did the original pictures. And for the first time, uh, it was like the fifth mammogram I'd had. They pulled out the paddles with the grids and the numbers. And so I began to sob. And I'm like, you see something. And I ended up having cancer on the bottom fold of my right breast. And by the time I got home and took a look at it, because I don't stand in front of the mirror and like dance naked or whatever. And I kept feeling and they kept telling me it was a suspensory ligament in the breast. That's what I was feeling. And cancer didn't hurt. Um, I had a fullness in my underarm as well. I went, had the mammogram before I could even get from the Women's Imaging Center to the car. They were calling to tell me I needed a biopsy, had a biopsy within a couple of days. And um, I'm one of the lucky ones. January 29th of 2014, I was diagnosed early stage breast cancer. We thought if I was aggressive at that age and did a bilateral mastectomy, I wouldn't need chemo or radiation. I woke up from the mastectomies not able to lift my arms. So I knew at that point I had signed consent for them to take my nodes if they were discovered in the OR and they were. And so um, this was, I had my mastectomy on February the 25th. My 40th birthday would have been the 28th. And I, all I wanted to do was get out of the hospital. So on the evening of the 27th, the surgeon came in and asked for me to sit down. And what they told me is I ended up having cancer in both breasts and in um, 23 out of 26 lymph nodes on the right side, which means now I've progressed. I'm no longer early stage. I'll need chemo and radiation. So right out of the gate, I was diagnosed 3C. I have lobular breast cancer that is hormone receptor positive. Um, been told by m countless medical professionals that they think I have some kind of genetic mutation. So far, I've had a variety of genetic testing. Nothing shows up. So maybe at some point it will, maybe it won't. Um, five years to the day, I was going to have some scans, mentioned to the doctor that I was having some back pain. Um, I grew up with scoliosis as a child. So I thought the back pain was from the scoliosis, but the doctor's like, let's just give it a quick look-see. And I was going back for the five-year checkup thinking that they were going to remove my port because I kept my report, uh, my port for the first five years. And the scans came back and showed that there was a lesion on my spine. So then we biopsied it and it was metastatic breast cancer. So I'm bone only. I was diagnosed five years to the day of my early stage diagnosis metastatic. Again, it had lobular properties in the bone. Um, I am one of the fortunate ones, and I realize that. But as each month, every time I count up, I also know I'm counting closer to the next treatment. I will start my 66th cycle of Ibrance and Fazlodex this Friday. And I just celebrated my fifth year with NBC and my 10th year with breast cancer. So I do feel fortunate. It has afforded me a community of people that I didn't know. And working in healthcare, I always thought, okay, if you go have a mastectomy, you won't need all these extra things and that the cancer won't come back. But as I learned, depending on the type of cancer you have, um, it, things change with my lobular cancer. And even though I do imaging, I'll tell you, it's very hard to see and detect. So it's not always um, 
detectable on imaging. So I feel like that's why I I had um, the stage I did at diagnosis because we were unable to see it in 2014. And I just feel fortunate that we caught it early in 2019. So my only thing that I would say to you, if you're listening, is please make sure you know your body. You know when something feels right or don't. Be your own advocate. If you know something is not right, it doesn't matter what age you are. Keep going back to your healthcare professional because I feel like I saved my own life back then because who would have known if I had not kept insisting for them to check me, um, even though the imaging wasn't matching or the diagnosis and they told me you couldn't have pain with the cancer. For SBC, I've done different podcasts for them. Um, I currently help moderate their Thursday Night Thriver group on the first and third Thursday of the month. On the first Thursday, we do a group. On the third Thursday, we um, have, uh, is she a counselor? Is that right? We have a counselor now or a social worker that comes in and moderates for us. If you're living with NBC, we uh, encourage you to join our Thursday night group and make some friendships and make some bonds out there. I also was a Hear My Voice advocate in the class with Sheila. Um, in 2022. And I've served on several different advocacy. You can pick how active you want to be or how inactive, but truly advocate for yourself. One of my most favorite things that I've done thus far is I've served on the DOD as a grant reviewer. There, It's looking at different research. So there's so many different options out there. Just make sure when you're using a resource that it's something that's credible. Thank you for that, Amy. Abigail, do you want to give a shout out to Kathleen Friel, who I know is unable to join us tonight. The, one of the people that's missing tonight is uh, Kathleen Friel. I mentioned her at the beginning of our discussion tonight. And she has been serving on our leadership committee for several years. Uh, she was born with cerebral palsy and um, is an actual, I thought she was a neuroscientist, but actually she has a PhD in neurophysiology. I learn new things all the time. Uh, And she leads a research laboratory at the Burke Neurological Institute in White Plains, New York. Kathleen has been living not since with cerebral palsy since she was born, but then was also diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in 2018. Uh, Similar to several of the people on our panel, she is continuing to work full time and running this multi-million dollar laboratory. She is incredibly gifted and celebrated, Uh, but she has also been on a CDK4-6 inhibitor. Uh, Several people talked about this particular class of drugs. There are three, Ibrantz, Kiskali, and Verzenio. So she's been on a very uh, CDK4-6 inhibitor in in addition to an aromatase inhibitor, letrozole, since 2018. Um, And she is unable to be with us tonight because MBC is not a fun disease to have. And of course, the medication provides side effects that are sometimes very, very difficult to, uh, to deal with. But one of the initiatives that Kathleen is uh, spearheading is a uh, collection of information about the people who participate with survivingbreastcancer.org, their information in terms of contact information, uh, their birthdays, things like that, so that we can celebrate with them. But she's also working on collecting emergency contacts because when you live with metastatic breast cancer, sometimes you don't feel well enough to get on a support group or to participate in events like this. And so 
uh, knowing that we have that contact information so that we're able to check on uh, the people that were missing and make sure that we are able to support them in the best way possible. That was one of Kathleen's ideas. So um, that will be something that we're gonna be rolling out for our uh, community and um, is absolutely one of those initiatives that if there are other people who want to participate is something that somebody else could help with um, as well. And Abigail, although you're moderating right now, we do need to turn the tables and ask you to introduce yourself. My name is Abigail Johnston, as uh, Laura introduced me at the beginning, and I've been involved with survivingbreastcancer.org. Well, according to LinkedIn, it's been more than 50 years, five years. So um, I got involved with them relatively early on before COVID when they would still uh, actually go in person to places and have in-person events. And so I've been privileged to serve on the board um, as well as chair this uh, NBC leadership committee for the last several years since we um, since we dreamed it up, which is basically the way everything happens. Uh, and now we have some subcommittees and so we're definitely growing. But I was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer, invasive ductal carcinoma uh, back in 2017. Um, that diagnosis was what we call de novo Latin from, that means from the beginning. So I never had an early stage diagnosis. Um, in, I was metastatic from the beginning. I was 38 and got my first mammogram in uh, coming to my doctor and saying there's this lump and I had not been screened previously. I was breastfeeding uh, my two boys at the time. And I am very thankful that no medical provider said to me, you're too young for breast cancer because there are some people who are diagnosed prior to 40 who struggled to get scans because uh, medical professionals often forget that when there is a germline or genetic mutation, which we have, that you can sometimes get breast cancer prior to the general time when you're more likely to get breast cancer. And so I was misdiagnosed for a couple of months. We thought I was stage two for a bit. And then due to a medical mistake, discovered that I had actually been stage four from the beginning. So it was a very traumatic entry into this uh, experience of metastatic breast cancer. I learned a lot in that experience. So I had a lumpectomy and started traditional chemotherapy, uh, adriamycin and cytoxin. Sometimes uh, adriamycin is sometimes called the red devil. Um, and it deserves that name. Let me tell you that. Um, so I began kind of that traditional early stage uh, treatment until in the middle of that, we discovered I had been um, metastatic from the beginning. Uh, so I am presently on my sixth line of treatment, uh, which is a clinical trial uh, specific to, to immunotherapy. Uh, you heard Claudia a little bit earlier talk about the PDL1 uh, somatic mutation. Somatic meaning not in your DNA, something that the cancer acquired. And uh, that particular mutation can indicate that someone is going to be, someone is going to benefit uh, from immunotherapy. And so that is part of the reason that I am in an immunotherapy trial. It's basically a vaccine. Um, and so we're, we are hoping that it works the way it's designed to, because the idea would be that once the trial is done, I would be able to not have to be on ongoing treatment. So 
Metastatic breast cancer, for people who don't realize this, is something where you have to take medication to keep it in check, unless you are someone like Claudia, who has responded extremely well and is able to not be on ongoing medication. Otherwise, you have to be on medication until um, it no longer works for you. So the idea potentially that we could have treatment that would mean we don't have to be on medication forever uh, is, is pretty compelling. And I, I wanted Kat, Katie to talk about clinical trials and I wanted to talk about my clinical trial as well because every medication that everybody on this panel has talked about, the only way that we have access to that medication is because there was a clinical trial and then it was approved by the FDA to be able to be given to people in the United States. There, there are processes in, in other countries as well. And so, um, so at, we at survivingbreastcancer.org absolutely support the process of clinical trials. In fact, we have a whole page on our website dedicated to those organizations, those pharmaceutical companies who have partnered with us to share information about their clinical trials. Uh, sad fact of the matter is only about three to 5% of people uh, who are living with cancer, specifically breast cancer, uh, tend to participate in clinical trials. And that is a very small number. And so it's important for all of us, I believe, to consider uh, clinical trials, as Katie said, at every step of the way. It's not a last resort. It's not a Hail Mary. It's not just at the very end. Um, it, it's important to consider that with your team. Not that clinical trials are good for everybody, not that everybody is going to qualify for a clinical trial, but, but we would urge everyone to consider that possibility every step of the way. And so I just wanted to highlight that a little bit because I am, I'm grateful every day when I have taken medication in the past, somebody took the risk to allow a pharmaceutical company to see if that medication was safe in order for me to be able to take that medication in order for everybody on, on this uh, committee, on this call to be able to be stable for years and be with their families and all of that. So it's important to, to remember and consider that. So we have a little bit more time in our discussion tonight. And um, a couple of people have mentioned what they are doing for survivingbreastcancer.org. But I wanted to open it up if there was anything we didn't talk about. I know Amy is chairing our subcommittee on social media. Um, I don't know, Amy, if you want to talk a little bit more about what y'all are doing. Melanie mentioned that she's hosting uh, the Facebook page this month. Um, survivingbreastcancer.org does have a uh, Facebook group. Um, and that is a, a mixed group of people with early um, stage and metastatic breast cancer. Um, so that falls under our social media uh, subcommittee. So Amy, did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So we have a, a panel that has early stage and late stage people. And what that does is it's allowing us to see the what is important for early stage people, but also what's um, important for late stage. We're going through the data from everyone that's joined from the beginning of the onset of the Facebook page. And we're trying to clean up and we're trying to get people more engaged and more active. Our goal is to have a host going forward each month and to alternate from an early stage and a late stage. And then in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we hope to have an early stage and late stage work together to bring awareness for breast cancer. It's not all pink ribbons. 
Um, but our goal is if you're interested in participating in that, we'd love to have you join us. So we hope to roll that out and to have the Facebook page as a place where you can interact with us and we can learn more about you other than just your breast cancer diagnosis. We've talked, discussed ideas on ways to share and engage the community. Um, Right now we're working through, like I said, going back through the data from 2017. I think we're up to the year 2021. Um, We've made a lot of progress. We just started this at the beginning of the year. Um, I want to give a shout out to Julie and Carol. They both are on our early stage leadership team and they're doing a lot of work and it's actually working very well. We're working together. We want to bridge the gap because the goal is we want if someone is early stage and they do happen to have a diagnosis of late stage or stage four metastatic breast cancer, we don't want you to feel alone. We want you to have resources that some of us didn't feel like we had right at diagnosis. We also want to make sure that we are a community that embraces those that are diagnosed de novo and we offer resources. The Facebook page is going to share all the events that Surviving Breast Cancer offers throughout the month to keep you engaged. There's yoga, there's writing, there's a book club, there's all these different activities to remind women living with or men living with um, uh, breast cancer that there's, you're more than just your diagnosis. We forget that oftentimes living metastatic. So we want to encourage everybody to embrace their well-rounded self and um, find a place where that they can recharge their batteries, but give back to themselves. A little bit of self-care through all the offerings from surviving breast cancer. That's wonderful, Sheila. We had a comment on uh, the live stream uh, pointing out that the Hispanic community does need a lot of information. And Sheila, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Is Are there barriers to people in the Hispanic community being able to access good information? Yes. And the, the, the barriers go far deeper than just the language barrier. I think part of it, it's just cultural. The way we're brought up if I remember when I was living in the island in Puerto Rico, I remember you go to the doctor when you feel sick, they tell you what you have, they give you medication, you get the prescription, you don't question, you walk away, do as you're told. Um, sometimes you walk out and you didn't even know what is it that you have, you just know what medication you're taking afterwards. Um, but I think in some cases, as the way we're brought up makes it more difficult for us to be vocal and just be the informed patient that asks questions and tries to understand what's going on, why, what options I have, and come to terms with the fact that the doctor doesn't get to make the decision. It is your decision. And that is not also something that's welcome um, by every medical professional, which is a clear sign you probably need to look for someone else. But it is something that I think because of our upbringing, it it could be perceived as you're being you're disrespecting someone of authority. Um, So I think part of it is just overcoming that, of course, just um, getting access to specialists in your type of cancer. It's 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 better for you if you have the ability to go to uh, someone that specializes in breast cancer, go there. But sometimes we don't even know that there's a distinction, um, but also realize that that's not an option in every single case, in every single place, which is why having information and having uh, knowledge of things like what's your cancer subtype? What type of testing do you do? Do you have a genetic mutation? 
then you're able to have those conversations and make sure that the treatment that you're being offered as an alternative is indeed something that matches what your clinical panorama is. Um, obviously cost, it's another big thing because treatments are expensive and you don't always know that there are many places where you can request support. It can be a grant that you can apply for. It could be organizations that provide funding for different types of expenses. It could be even the pharmaceutical company that makes the medication you're drinking. In my case, nobody told me that there was a copay program for eye brands. And even though I have very good health insurance coverage through my employer's health insurance, I was still going to have a copay, copay if it wasn't because the pharmaceutical uh, person that contacted me said, hey, have you talked about, you know, do you know about X program? And ended up being able to have that with a zero copay, which is not the case for everyone. I think that the challenges we face as a Hispanic community are very similar in many respects to what anyone faces, regardless of race. But I think a little bit of kind of like the upbringing actually uh, plays a, a big role and just availability of things in your own language, because it's it's not easy to understand, even if it's in your own language. But when you actually have things that are not in in Spanish, it's it's even harder for you to try to maneuver around it. Thank you for, for sharing that. And another thing that is really important, we are brought up not to talk about your problems with people. And it can be very isolating. Um, and you may be able to talk to your friends about it, but they're not walking your shoes. So many times when I speak with other folks, whether it's as part of a mentoring relationship or just people that sometimes I get connected with, the fact that they're able to talk to someone else and see in me a reflection of something that, I mean, it brings hope to them, being able to talk freely, no, you know, knowing there's no judgment, no question at all is out of bounds. Um, that sometimes it's a little bit different because in our community, it's kind of more, you keep it to yourself, you deal with it on your own and asking for help. Yeah, that's, there's a little fine line there too. So it's, it, it's a little bit uh, more difficult, I would say at times. Amy, I think you wanted to share something else before we get to our last question. Yes. So Sheila had mentioned, and I just wanted, cause we've all talked about the different lines of treatment and I just wanted to reiterate, I know we often talk about this when treatment stops working, we don't fail the treatment, the treatment fails us. And I just want to remind those watching and listening to remember that, that you didn't fail anything. If you're going through progression, the treatment stopped working for you. Thank you for that, Amy. That is some of that language that becomes really impactful. Um, I, I can't tell you how many medical professionals I have talked to who said the patient failed a particular treatment line. And that, that's a, an enduring uh, way of looking at things. I so appreciate everyone's conversation today and sharing their stories and the work that we have going on at survivingbreastcancer.org. I know Abigail loves to end our MPC webinar series asking all of us to think of a word, or in my case, sometimes a phrase, to really sum up today's conversation. So let's each think of a word and you know share our final remarks. I think every time we get together, I think we get like energy and we kind of feed off something that someone shares. And it could be the story, it could be information, it could be resources, could be understanding how big things are getting with SBC, understanding that you just have the power to take control and you control the narrative, you drive your story. And again, it's 
just feel like it gives people that 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 power, that strength to just do the next best thing for you. Because what's best for you may not be the best for someone else. But remember, you do you. That's you to take care of yourself first. Okay, thank you, Sheila, because that was exactly what I was going to say. But <laughs> I had an alternate word just in case, and it's education. I think if for us uh, becoming educated in what our diagnosis is, where our uh, choices are, I think that's extremely important. And surviving breast cancer can give us not only the basis to un- understand what our immediate diagnosis is, but also to educate us beyond that, beyond uh, uh, what we what we are living right now, and how we're going to continue living. And uh, and I just want to say also that that's one. Uh, of the things that I have in mind with the Latino community that we need to become educated so in order to just uh, for our voices to be heard we need to become educated and to share our experiences so I have two words actually one is family because I feel like this is family and I feel home but inspired for all the work that SBC is doing for 2024. So inspired. Um, My word is uh, similar to Amy's, but uh, community. And I feel like, uh, you know, we are really, um, yeah, represented the community that SBC is uh, trying to build, not just uh, within uh, the metastatic space, but uh, for all all individuals uh, impacted by breast cancer. One word that comes to mind is intimacy. And it's not in the sexual realm, but it's we are sharing an intimate part of our life, which is our cancer journey. And we're sharing that with each other. And I just feel like that's a certain closeness that, to me, intimacy describes it, but not in the sexual sense. That's kind of my word. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice you should always contact your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.